Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Topic of Page podcast. My name is John Mayer. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. Joining me in this episode is Kay Kellum. We are going to do another one of our movie episodes, as we are wont to do. And These are uh, actually, frankly, becoming some of the more expensive episodes to do. Uh, this was not as bad as All You Need Is Kill, where we did the IMAX experience in 3D. We had the novel. We had the, the manga. Uh, for this, we're just doing uh, the movie. Uh, it's X-Men Days of Future Past. We just saw that in 3D. That was $11.50 a shot. And we saw it in the real 3D as opposed to the IMAX 3D. So I can now compare for myself those two 3D experiences. Well, there's 3D, there's IMAX 3D, and IMAX Experience 3D. Exactly. And out of them, I'm kind of preferring the, the IMAX Experience 3D. Because IMAX is a little bit of a head strain because you're, you're having to look all over the place. This was good, but didn't quite fill the... You know, I like having the bigger screen that we had on the IMAX experience. I think this it not depends bad, on the movie. I think for something like Star Trek, where you need to be able to read the caption of what planet am I on and that kind of thing, then IMAX experience, where I can see the edges of the screens. Yeah. Yes, I like that. For something like Gravity, where I just want to get totally immersed in the experience. Or Avatar. Or Avatar. Avatar, definitely. I would definitely want the full IMAX. Yes. And for today's experience going to real 3D, we could see the edges of the screen. And we were probably about three quarters of the way up. We were at a nice yeah. level vantage point. And I think if we had gone down to a lower seat, we might have been closer and less aware of the edges of the screen, but we'd have been looking up at it. And I would have found that less appealing an experience. Yeah, I found the, the, the height we were at good for the screen. Maybe a, almost a tad high, but I don't know that I would want to be any lower. They had a very steep separation between the seats they at did. this theater. Um, now, this is going to be a very spoiler-heavy kind of an episode. You know, with talking about comics where you've got serialized stories uh, from, from issue to issue on a title, I don't like to go into too many spoilers. It's easy to get behind, and, you know, it's, it's a more timely kind of a thing. Uh, with TV shows where you've got seasons and seasons... Again, it's good to do a little spoiler-free stuff if people aren't familiar with the television show. Well, and especially if we're trying to get you to start watching a season. We're trying to get you excited and to go out and either get it on DVD to go Netflix a season. Then we don't want to spoil it for you. Right. We want to entice you to, to read or enjoy the story or view it, as the case would be for TV. For a movie, even something like X-Men, where this is like the fifth fifth movie I think they've done, it's still a two-hour-ish, two-and-a-half in this case, I think, experience. And they're standalone stories, therefore I think there's not much point in doing much spoiler-free stuff. Uh, so I'm figuring we'll just kind of dive in and, and the spoilers come as they come. Well, especially in this case where I'm pretty sure the movie's been in the theater for about five weeks at this point. So those of you who wanted spoiler-free experiences, I'm pretty sure you already went to the theater. 
Well, they could be waiting for DVD or Blu-ray. We do that a lot. That's very true. That's very true. And I will admit, the moment they told us the price of the tickets, my first thought was, this is why I usually wait for the DVD and the Blu-ray. It's less expensive than the theater experience, and with the projector onto the wall, we feel like we've got a similar size, etc. So the trade-off... But that's I'm kind still of, weighing it. That's kind of why I consider these more expensive episodes. I'm going to go ahead and pick up the Blu-ray. I was going to pick up the Blu-ray anyways. If we reviewed the Blu-ray, it's almost, well, I was going to do that. Look just like I'm going to get the comics, you know? Whereas here, I wasn't necessarily going to go hit the theater as, as the default option. To um, me, that's more the exception than the rule. I'm not positive what I gained by going to the theater versus waiting for the Blu-ray, except the not waiting as long to get to see it, versus the Blu-ray will have the extra features yeah. and so on. Audience reaction. And I That's think this true. time we got a wonderful audience reaction, and I correctly interpreted that it was not you that was having the reaction. It was not my reaction, and I thank you kindly for not elbowing me every five minutes and telling me to knock it out because it was not my reaction. Thank you very much. The person on the other side of me, or on the other side of K from me, was snoring during Re the movie. Repeatedly, throughout the first hour. And it's like, I'm, I'm pretty sure that wasn't you, but I, I was just doubtful enough. I came very close to just nudging you to make sure you were awake. I mean, if I'm going to pay, you know, $11 plus for a movie, we ought to stay awake to see it. Yeah, um, uh, the it person's kind of better half did nudge them repeatedly throughout the first hour of the movie, and I did actually hear their better half tell them, look at the screen and point out things and... Um, I got the impression they had seen the movie before, and at one point I'm pretty sure I heard a, this is the part you wanted to see again type remark, but it was a very disconcerting reaction to the movie. Well, before we get into the movie, let's talk just a little about what kind of uh, experience, knowledge, and baggage we were bringing in. Because I think we're coming at this film from different vantage points. Oh, definitely. Uh, I've seen all of the, the, the X-Men movies. The original three, and then uh, X-Men First Class that I'm holding in my hand, which I'm pretty sure you have not seen. And I was surprised when, to realize very early on in the movie, I saw something and I realized, wait a sec, I must be behind by one movie, and I hadn't realized that. This was one, uh, X-Men First Class, where they kind of did a, a prequel of sorts to the, the the original trilogy. Not that it was trilogy, anyways. Uh, and set it kind of in the Bay of Pigs time frame, with them playing into those events. And they talked about that quite a bit. They did. In Days of Future Past. Now, the other difference in terms of our experience is... I am familiar with the comic book story, Days of Future Past. You, of course, are not. I'm unfamiliar with not only the comic book, Days of Future Past. I'm unfamiliar with the comic books of all X-Men in general. So I frequently, after an experience like this, will sit there going, So, John, how does this compare? And does this come at all from it? And help me out here. Educate me. Let me know. Did this play fair or did this feel true? Well, and it's one of those things that there are certain things I pick up as Easter eggs, like the entire future group of X-Men. I mean, obviously, you recognized um, Professor X, Magneto, um, uh, Wolverine, Storm. From there, who else did you recognize? Probably um, Colossus? 
Probably not. He was the one who turned in the metal. Yes, but I didn't know him by name, and that was really annoying me, because I knew he was familiar, and I'm sitting here going, do I know him from Saturday morning cartoons? What do I know him from, and why are you never referring to these people by name? I don't think they ever did name him, and there are quite a few they didn't. They named Sunspot. They never named Bishop. He oh, was... no, I heard the name Bishop. Okay, which one was that? Can't tell you, but I heard the name Bishop okay, because... Okay, that's funny. No, way. I think Bishop was up on top of something at one point, telling them people were coming. Yes. He was the uh, the African-American guy who kept getting zapped by something to charge up. Yes. And, and I then thought... firing his gun, yes, which had I... nothing to do with his powers, although he had a gun in the comments. I thought that was kind of cool, but I couldn't figure out how that worked. No, I... I wished in the future section that they would have done a better job of identifying who was who. They had a narration that kind of laid out the names. When they first meet up with uh, Professor Rex and um, Kitty is going through, you know, Warpath does this, Blink does this, this happens, this, you know, they kind of gave a, a, a rundown. But it was just chaotic enough and not clearly identifiable enough that if you don't know kind of going in, I could see where you'd be a little lost. I was very lost and very frustrated because I didn't know if it was me being an inattentive and bad viewer or if it was on the part of the movie. And that, that was where my frustration lay. I think they were banking on more geek knowledge about the X-Men than a, a casual or non-reader of comics would have. The other thing that set this apart from the, the comic book story, because the comic book story was done by, I'm pretty sure it was Chris, Chris Claremont, I'm trying to remember when, gosh, early 80s, late 70s, I'd have to double check to be sure, um, but it was, in that case, Kitty Pride that went back in time. Hmm. Now, because of the timeline they've set up in the movies, Kitty in the future, because the, the movie is set about 10 years from now, We've seen Kitty as a student in one of the last uh, present-day films. So she wouldn't have been old enough to go back to 73. So, okay, let's put Wolverine there. Plus, it's Hugh Jackman. He's a popular character. It just makes sense to do that. But her having the power to do that, frankly, just puzzled me. Because she's shown still having the intangibility to, to phase through objects and stuff. And I liked how they did that and how they used that in the early fight scenes. That was one of my second favorite things. The first thing was Blink. She With was the, the portals? The portals, the yes. teleporter. She was a character in the comics who originally showed up in Age of Apocalypse, which was done 10, 20 years after Days of Future Past. She didn't even exist there. She was creative for Age of Apocalypse. And she was killed off almost instantly. And she had these red dart glowing things that do teleportation and portals and stuff. Um, she then became the leader of the Exiles, which was about a 100-issue series where it was taking place in alternate continuities. And it was basically, let's pick a couple of variant versions of X-Men that have died or whatever, and this is their last hurrah. And it was just a rotating cast. Mm -hmm. So that was really where she got to be known. She was used wonderfully in this film. She was. Blink was... And again, I wasn't always positive what her name was, but I loved her use of the portals and the effect they were using for it. And yeah. What I liked is not only was it a cool effect, it showed some great choreography it did. of the fight scenes. And because of that, implied that this was a group that had worked and trained together in true X-Men style. Yes. And had that interaction. At one point, she, and this is, I think, near the end, uh, 
does a portal. Colossus dives through. The portal is now way up in the sky. He comes barreling down. And I'm thinking, okay, he's going to like do a pile driver smash into somebody. And it's like, no. He goes into another portal that she has set up. And now he's coming straight at him at a, at a you know, perpendicular or, you know, horizontal direction. You know, it's using that to build up the momentum, doing the way they did the fight scenes, the, uh, that, the, the use of Iceman at times. That team functioned so well and had obviously been built up so well. It was what I had thought, erroneously apparently, the Avengers was going to be in that first Avengers movie where it was, you know, we're going to assemble a team and they're going to come together and they're going to function well together. I would say in terms of superheroes, you have groups that have just kind of come together. You have an assemblage of people. They're in the vicinity of each other. You have a team. They've kind of gotten to know each other. They've kind of gotten to work together. Then you have a band. And a band in so much as like the musical group that have the harmony, that have yes. the timing, that are in sync, and that are playing the same song, if you will. That really, for the first time I can recall in a movie, we got in this film. The, the choreography, the interplay between the characters in terms of the fighting. In this future world, they had to do that to survive. So, of course, they got that good. If you didn't, you died. And Magneto was part of the band. At one point, he's walking backwards, knowing that a portal will be made for him to go through. I wasn't sure how much of that he knew or just she did, or but yes, it played well. And... The use of Sunspot versus Iceman, the fire and ice motif stuff was fun. Um, all in all, a lot of that team played really well. And they were essentially, well, really, uh, Iceman we'd seen before in other X-Men films. Uh, Kitty we'd seen before. Colossus only a little bit. Uh, but we had not seen Sunspot before. We had not seen Blink. We had not seen Bishop. We had not seen Warpath. So the core of that group was, was new for this film. And that's part of the fun of the X-Men is you can bring in new characters. But then also part of the fun is you've got all this history. You've got all these other characters to play with. I mean, Xavier, Magneto, Wolverine, and Mystique, I think, have been a staple in pretty much every film with, with Wolverine having sat out uh, first class. Um, well, and I think they did a really good job of showing that Xavier is human. Yes. He has foibles, he has moments of weakness, and seeing the two different actors portray the character, seeing them do that in one scene together was a lot of fun. And it shows, again, the growth, the arc of that character. Um, and I loved it when Wolverine was telling young Xavier to look past the pain, look past my pain to your future. Mm-hmm. That was a, a well-done scene, and it didn't go where I thought it was going to go. I thought he was telling him to look into my memories, not... And get kind of a clip show of what we've seen. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yes. I was expecting that, too. I... What we got worked, though. Yes. What we got was a, a beautiful moment that two actors just took what was on the page and took to a whole new level. Well, Brian Singer, the director of, of this, has directed, I think, most of the others, maybe not all of the others, I'm not entirely sure, looking for who directed the last one. And the print on this uh, DVD box is small enough, my eyesight not quite good enough. Anyways, he's got a understanding of the characters. There is a 
visual sense of the X-Mansion, the X-Men look, feel, style, that has remained true, even though in some cases it's over the course of decades, both of movie making, early a decade and a half, and 30, 40, 50 years of, of story time. Because, I mean, they've gone as far back as the 60s. Well, and going back to things where... I love the movies, I enjoy the movies, but I know there are things that fly right over my head because I'm just a surface viewer in this world. I didn't know who the really fast kid named Peter was. That was Quicksilver. That was Magneto's son. And That's I also had Quicksilver, a who's going to be in the Avengers. I had a feeling he was Magneto's son based on a comment that was made. And there was a great moment at the end of the scene in the kitchen mm-hmm. with Wolverine where he, you know, he, he tells the kid, good job and stuff. And he was a really good character in the scenes he was in. What was fun with the scene in the kitchen, which is a fight scene that's pretty much his for, you know, just Quicksilver and his alone almost. With a great soundtrack, by the way. Great soundtrack. And it showed his personality in the fight. Yes. Yes. He was going through and he was having fun. It's the whole, if I could stop time, what would I do sort of thing. And he's fast enough, he essentially can. It's interesting to also see in certain places in the movie where they do kind of homages to past, or in this case, movie future events. Um, How do you trap somebody like Magneto? How do you break him out? How do you do stuff like that? When he's at one point and he's got the two spheres going around, again, we saw that in, I think, the second movie, maybe. Um, But still, beautifully done, well new, inventive, and entertaining. Yet it's got a sense of, of these characters are who they are. And one of the things that never seen before in a movie and doubt I ever will again was how Magneto essentially captures the White House. Yes, I love that. I he's knew like, what is he doing at this stadium? I don't get oh, he's he's stealing the stadium. Once he was stealing the stadium, I knew he was doing it for a reason. He was going to surround something. And even as he's moving it, I hadn't fully grasped he's going to surround the White House until he did. Because I'm like, is he going to use it to collect up all of the police cars? What is he going to surround? But it was almost all uh, moving via the Golden Gate Bridge in the third movie. You know, again, it's similar to but different from the sense of, of... continuity, consistency, and whatnot in these films. It's just, it's really well done. Well, and I loved that the safe room in the White House was almost the opposite construction model of the room he'd been imprisoned in. Yes. I loved how they take the uh, the seal in the Oval Office, pull it back, and there's an emergency bunker beneath it. Yes. Like, that's brilliant. Yes. What a, What a convenient place to put it. There were a few things here and there where whenever we were looking at, you know, the uh, who was killed in the experimentation, I'm looking at the names. When we get the privates over in, uh, was it Saigon or wherever, you know, we got Alex Summer, Cyclops' brother, the Toad. Um, the two others I didn't recognize. One of them had uh, radiation powers, and I feel I should have recognized him. I was going to say, I want to know who was the one who knew her by name. That was Alex. That was uh, a Cyclops' brother, Havoc. That was the one at the end who shot the, the, the energy blast. Cyclops is um, Scott Summers. That was, uh, again, major spoiler here. At the end, the one in the office with Jean Grey. Got it. Got it. So, in the in, in the comics, 
those two are brothers, that's a big deal uh, when they pull in their father, who at some point I would hope they would, particularly if they can integrate with the Marvel Studios films, because their father, I think, would make a great kind of cameo or whatever in Guardians of the Galaxy, because he's a space pirate, Corsair. Um, but again, we're already getting a little bit of blurring of what characters can be used where, because Quicksilver is definitely an X-Men character. He's also been a member of the Avengers for a long time. He's definitely an Avengers character. As is the Beast, as is Scarlet Witch, as are, well, right now, actually, Sunspot's a member of the Avengers. Based on this movie, Quicksilver was excellent here. Yes, he was very well done. Very well done. So I'd like to see him stay here. I'm, it, it sets the bar for what that actor and that character needs to do in Avengers 2 to live up to expectations set here. Mm-hmm. Because I thought that the character was wonderfully used. Well, and I'd like to go back to my music comment mm-hmm. from his fight scene of the moment they set most of this movie in 73. You know, the music could have been the not-so-great aspect of the 70s or... I really thought they picked the best that they could have and the best aspects of the 70s to set the scene and help sell it. I think doing 73 versus later 70s was part of that. And that could very well be. But I think they did a great job, to your point there, of getting the time frame, the style, the ambiance, the The, the mustard yellow chairs at one point. Just the, the sunglasses and the look for Wolverine and such. It was iconic 70s, but not, oh my god, iconic 70s. No, it was just enough to sell it and the lava lamp at one point, so he woke up knowing he was in the 70s. The waterbed. Yes. Again, there were a couple of things that were very, let's let's nail the time period down pretty quickly and effectively. Yeah. The other actor I really want to give a shout out to, because I think he did just a marvelous job, was uh, Peter Dinklage, who played uh, Bolivar Trask. Oh, yes, definitely. He was arguably the uh, the big bad or the, the, the victim of the piece, depending how you look at it. Yes. Key player throughout, creator of the Sentinels and stuff, ha- definitely came from the comics and all of that. And the actor was able to capture why the character did what he did without being maniacal over grandize. You know what I mean? He, he was believable as... This is kind of the way of things. I think it could be great for everybody, but I think they are a threat. There's a part of me that feels, you know, he went through this whole script and says, where does this character's motivation and understanding come from? And there's a part in the, uh, when he's testifying before Congress and he's quoting a mutant who wrote a paper for Oxford. Mm-hmm. And there is part of me that wonders, you know, which mutant wrote that paper? Yeah, I'm curious about that, too. You know, uh, but he says that, you know, this isn't the first time mutants have appeared on Earth. There were mutants before, and they were the Homo sapiens who got rid of the Neanderthals because they became extinct. Well, folks, we're now the Neanderthals. Yeah, he, he summed it up beautifully. There's a part of the mutant saga of the Marvel Universe, both in comics, film, TV even, that is just an allegory for discrimination. Yes. But there's also an aspect of these people can control your mind, control the elements, control magnetism, are indestructible, they can shoot laser beams out of their eyes. They are a threat if they choose to be. 
Well, my question coming out of this movie is, in the next movie, which character will exist? Raven or Mystique? Let's jump to that for a sec, because we stayed for the end scene, and the the after credits end scene. Ah, the scene that made no sense to the non-comic book reader, I apologize. Well, they're sitting there, and it took me a little bit to, f- to realize, oh, wow, this is where they're going next. Because uh, I don't keep up on what they're planning for the movies. I don't want to. I want to experience the story as it comes. And it was a scene in which we see a pyramid being built. Oh, and I did love how the pyramid was being built with the powers and the effects as opposed to the slaves breaking their it backs. It was as if Magneto was doing it. Somebody with his powers except they affect sand, not, not, not uh, metal. Yes, that was beautifully crafted. And we get the chanting and stuff, which was familiar. Uh, and then we get the, the, the one guy who's doing it. We kind of pivot around to see him from the side. And in the distance, there are four horsemen. It's like, this is Apocalypse. Now, if you don't read the comics, it's like, yeah, so who, who the hell is Apocalypse? He's been one of the major, major bad guys in the X-Men franchise for the last couple of decades, on and off. And typically when he comes into play, characters get radically changed. At one point, because the four horsemen, death, uh, 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 famine, um, war, and what's the other typical fourth horseman of the apocalypse? I cannot name uh, them. Famine, pestilence, maybe. There, I think you hadn't named pestilence yet. Pestilence, war, famine, and death. There Those you are go. the ones, I think. I'm, I'm doing this from memory. Forgive me if I'm wrong. Various X-Men have been various horses of the apocalypse. Horsemen of the apocalypse, not horses. That would just be weird. <laughs> Um, Wolverine's been one, Angel has been one, um, trying to name some of the others, if, trying to remember Cyclops has been one. Anyways, that big major event sort of a thing for the X-Men stuff, very exciting, and I like how all of that seemed to be set in the past to where which X-Men they want to use for the next film, totally up for grabs. They can Mm -hmm. pull whoever they want to, whoever they need to, Mm -hmm. and I like it when they keep kind of their options open. Because this is a franchise that has so many characters, has such a a wide history, that there are easily four or five apocalypse stories to pull, minimum. And and that's just the, the, oh my god, you know, major event type stuff, and other ones he's played into. Um, Age of Apocalypse being one of them, in which the entire timeline was changed to almost a post-apocalyptic thing, which is kind of sort of what we got in this. Yeah. Although that, too, was part of Days of, of Future Past. So it's... I, I like when they have those teaser scenes. This one was better than some of the past ones. Um, I liked how they used the characters. I liked the blending of both casts of X-Men. I, I liked how they had Wolverine doing this. I liked how Wolverine went into the past. I thought it was hilarious when Wolverine had his issue. He lost his calm place and was sort of jarred between is he in the past or not. Did you catch what was happening there? He seemed to suddenly remember when his claws switched is what I took When from he it. got his metal skeleton. Yeah. Now that was uh, William Stryker who did all that to him. See, and that's why I couldn't remember for sure. That was the military guy hanging around Bolivar Trask the whole time. That was also who, at the end, Mystique Uh, was impersonating when she fished him up. See, and I knew Stryker was familiar to me the whole time. And I was trying to, again, place him. Because, like you're saying, there are so many characters in this universe. 
and trying to assign who's the right guy to Even the right just place. The movie version of the X Men universe is pretty big because a lot of that was flashing back to I think X Men Three, where a lot of that was revealed. I think. Well, and part of what was confusing me was Magneto had made the comment earlier. Wouldn't it be nice if those were metal? And Which I was kind thinking, of goes back to a callback in the first X-Men movie where he's able to basically string Wolverine up because he can control metal. Yeah. And it was a kind of, was that comment, wouldn't it be nice for you or wouldn't it be nice for me? Yeah. And again, the interplay between these characters was a lot of fun. Very well done. Um, the effects, again, over the top, brilliantly done. I can't think of a single shot in there where I was thinking, wow, that effect could have or should have been done better. Um, Blink, to me, was the the real winner in terms of takeaway special effects for this film. Past films, the one that really took the cake was uh, Wolver or, uh, Nightcrawler. Um, in the second movie, there's a scene where he basically breaks into the White House, and he's teleporting in and out, leaving kind of a almost like a crimson brimstone smoke behind mm, him. Mm -hmm. And it was just the, the particle effects on the FX were done beautifully. The choreography, it was just mm -hmm. wonderfully done. You know, they've had some really great action sequences in the past. This movie did not disappoint in that regard. Yeah. Now, I think the fact that they went back to the 60s for X-Men First Class, they're doing the 70s now. I don't know if they're going to do an 80s one or, or where they're going to go, because they left this off where if they wanted to do a continuation more with the, the earlier cast, they could if they wanted to do more with the later cast. And I mean that in both sense of within their timeline. Yeah, yeah. The younger versions of the characters, the older versions of the character, or within the movie history, you know, both casts could be put into play in various ways and shapes. Um, and I could see some fun stuff if they were to do an 80s one, bring in Dazzler. Uh, who is or isn't a mutant, depending who you ask, when you ask, disco-era product of the 80s. Um, could be a lot of fun. Well, and I don't know who wrote this one, but they did some really nice lines of dialogue and some really nice writing throughout this. I'm curious how much of this, because it's been a while since I've read the comic story, how much of this is out of Claremont's script? How much of that dialogue may have been lifted directly from? There are some key differences here and there, but they're also, I mean, it was a reasonably true adaptation for a lot of intents and purposes. And I like how they're doing that both with these films, with some of the uh, the X-Men, uh, not the X-Men, the Avengers, the uh, Iron Man, and some of those things, that they're pulling, uh, Captain America certainly, pulling some nice stuff from the comics, staying true, and retooling, rejiggering a few things as needed, but not like wholesale reinventing. Mm -hmm. Because too many times have the comic properties been taken to Hollywood, completely revamped, and then the comic companies feel it's like, well, geez, you know, most people know that, not what we've done. We got to pull that in. Sometimes that's good, sometimes it's not. Yeah. No, I, I came out of this reminded, yeah, again, why I always enjoy going to these movies. And why I endlessly wonder why do these movies not send readers to the comic books and I know we've talked about this in the past that there's no one specific comic book though in this case there is in this case where I think Marvel dropped the ball contractually given the decision to do Days of Future Past mm -hmm. the end of this the movie should have said okay basically we're done followed by a if you want to read the story this was adapted from, check out this trade, X-Men Days of Future Past. 
boom, go to the credits, whatever. Something to where you can see what the, the source material was. Mm -hmm. Because typically what seems to happen is movies like this, I think, make people more predisposed to be willing to read comics, but not to actually read comics. And when you've got movies like Sin City, 300, Watchmen, that are adaptations of a particular story arc of a handful of issues, those trades tend to sometimes bump up in sales. When it's Iron Man. Batman, the Avengers, the Something Hulk. too generic, something too large for people to know where do I dive in and what's an entry point that I can access this material from. Exactly. Yeah. And it's different to have, here's a five issue, you know, for 300 uh, or 12 issues of, of Watchmen. It's over. It's done. Mm-hmm. Even with Days of Future Past that were a handful of issues, that's set in the continuity of an ongoing title 30, 40 years ago. Well, I guess the question is, like you're saying, there is a trade paperback of Days of Future Past, so let's try and find the link where people can get this and put that up. Not because I think people listening to this specific podcast who saw it out haven't already read it, because hopefully they have, but because people who may do a Google search on the movie title may not have, and maybe they'll find our webpage, and they'll find the link, and maybe we'll get some people who are just doing a basic Google search to find the name of the movie and discover, hey, there is a specific trade paperback I could read, and we'll get a few people sent over that way. But you would think Marvel would want to be doing some of that on their own, too. I mean, yes, certainly it will do that, but it disappoints me every time they have an opportunity like that, that they don't take advantage of it, and some of this almost comes down to partnering better with the film companies, or in Marvel's case, do it yourself. They they licensed out the rights to Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, and the X-Men, and I don't know what kind of deal they did, because they've been doing their own films for quite some time, and haven't had the ability to get those rights back. Mm, yeah. And that just comes down to contracts and, and how you write them. Yeah. You know, when you don't have your own studio, yeah, if you want to go do something for a while, whatever. But they should have had more faith in their properties and the value of those to have a use-it-or-lose-it clause and a renegotiation every so many movies or what have you. Yeah, well, I just... I always hope when I see these movies do so well and I get so excited by these characters and I go out to San Diego Comic-Con and I see so many people so excited by all these characters. I just want to see them go dive into these comic books that I know you love and I know mm-hmm. so many people love and I hear so much good talk about. And I want to say, okay, why aren't people getting driven into this material? There's got to be an on-ramp. There's got to be some way that people would be getting there. And this trade paperback sounds like a direct on-ramp in this case. I think some of it is having the on-ramp. I think some of it is also, I can go spend two and a half hours-ish or whatever at the theater with a Blu-ray, in, out, got the story, I'm done. And there's a finite cost, both in times, money, etc. for that. Whereas with comic books, the serial installment, when does that come out, what's the next story, is it going to be consistent quality, and it's just like TV shows have peaks and valleys, so do comic books and stuff. Mm-hmm. The difference is TV sets are in your house, comics are not. I mean, with digital, they could be. So I think... Well, and TV shows are weekly. You have to grin and bear through the hiatus, but they're weekly, and comic books are monthly. And impatient people like me, we can't handle the monthly aspect. Well, and if people are flipping channels, they're getting the commercials as to, hey, this is coming up on yes. whatever. you got to go hunt for the comic information. I think that's a lot of it. But I think that's also in this day of social media, of internet marketing, if you were to be able to go 
to marvel.com and say, I am interested in the X-Men. Send me an email every so often. Let me know what's coming out. Or somewhere to be able to say, I liked this movie, what should I go read? That would be wonderful. And that kind of a recommendation system for comics, I think, has a lot of power. It's just a matter of there being a platform for that at some point. Yeah. Other thing that, that really stood out for me, in addition to just, it was a great film, but man, at the end when we were watching the credits. The amazingly large team it took to put together this film. There was a billion people in the credit. I mean, at one yeah. point it's like five columns across, scrolling a few times. I get that it's not easy to build these sets, mm. build these robots, get these costumes together, film this stuff, much less all of the digital work that's got to go on. Well, and that's the thing. All these amazing visual effects that they come together, creating the look of fire, the look of ice, the look of metal. And that's not even talking about the sentinels on top of the people doing it. It was just mind-blowing to realize how many people came together to make each individual character look so breathtaking on camera. Yeah, it, it... It takes a not-so-small army to put one of these movies together. Um, but it all came together really well. It showed on the screen. Um, it, well, was, it was fun. I enjoyed the 3D effects in part because never once did I feel the need to duck during the fighting scenes. None of them felt gratuitous. No, it was beautifully done, genuine 3D without throwing things at me. And I enjoyed it. It gave a sense of depth to the film without a sense of 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 depth to the film, yeah. I guess would be the way to put it. Well, it's... there was depth to the film without the, I'm about to throw something at a character who's in your general vicinity, so I'm going to throw it right at the audience member just to prove that this 3D is so good you feel the need to duck and dodge. Well, I guess it makes the the movie screen a window into the world of 3D there versus it trying to project out and smack you in the face. Yes. And 3D has come and gone over the decades, you know, going way back in film. And it would be like every other decade they would just, ah, let's try it again. This time they seem to have gotten it right. The technology is there. A lot of movies are coming out there. Hell, I've got a 3D projector here at the house. Well, and the sound was so nicely edited on this film that when we went down into the basement and Peter was playing uh, ping pong with himself, it sounded like he was behind us at first. And it's just a little throwing on the speakers, just a little differentiation in the sound, but it was nicely done. It gave you a sense of being in the world, and I am finding, particularly with this one, um, but I think it was also true with, with Avatar and a few of the others, with the 3D effect, is it, it it's that much more immersive. Mm-hmm. You know, you kind of walk out of the theater, I don't want to say in a stunned state, but in a little bit of, okay, I am coming out of something back into the real world. And with, like, Star Trek, even when we saw that in 3D, they do enough close-ups and some of that kind of stuff at times to really take me out of it. We got some close-ups here and whatnot, but... Well, and Star Trek had those lens flares that reminded you, this is a movie, this is a movie, that jarred you. X-Men Days of Future Past, time travel, big thing. 
set in uh, 73. 73. And at one point, there was clearly a rerun of Star Trek showing. Yes. Because it was kind of playing with the concept of, well, what will that do to the time continuum? Yes. When the Beast is trying to say, maybe we're stuck with it the way it is. Yes. Yeah. I I thought that was really well done. Yes. And then Xavier quotes his future self. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they'd already had the uh, the discussion at that point. Yes. Um, there were just a, a lot of really fun things there. I think you might have gotten a little bit more out of a couple of the scenes. Certainly Beast and when Raven was finding out about the deaths of various characters. If you had seen First Class, mm. where a lot of those characters had shown up. Yeah, I, I definitely want to see First Class. Uh, near the very end of this movie... When Xavier has frozen time and Raven has just saved the present, which has just changed everything so beautifully. And honestly, I had spent probably 20 minutes hoping a mutant would save the president. Yeah. That was the way I saw the future being changed. And she did it. And I'm like, yes, and she's the one who should have. She's, yes. Minor nitpick on that scene. Professor Xavier has telepathic powers. Okay. So he can, if people are standing around, kind of suspend their mind and freeze time, if you will. Mm -hmm. In that particular scene, there were people (laughs) mid-action. Yes. There's this thing in physics known as momentum. (laughs) No, no, an object in motion does not continue in motion. Yeah. Um, But no, what I loved in that scene where everybody was frozen mid-action and Raven has a weapon pointed at the person she has wanted to kill for almost the entire movie. That's the whole plot of the movie. We got to stop her from killing this guy. Of course she wants to kill him the entire time. Okay, Okay. keep going. Nitpick on me. Okay, so she's got her weapon pointed at him. She wants to kill him. And he doesn't control her at this point. He's talking to her. Mm-hmm. But instead of controlling her, he flat out says, I'm not going to. This... I trust you, essentially. You make the call. I trust you, and I have hope for the future. You've you've done the right thing, and I believe you will continue to do the right thing. Now, that particular gun she was holding was one of the glass guns. <laughs> yes, I loved that, too. That had been built for security around Magneto. The touches of how, again, how do you hold somebody like him? Yeah. Um, the the prop group did a, a really good job on that. Um, uh, well, and I loved it when Magneto told uh, his son, Quicksilver. 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 He says, you know, in 20 seconds or so, the door's going to open and a bunch of people are going to be out there aiming weapons at us trying to kill us. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm waiting for. I loved Quicksilver. Well, and even the little bit where it's like, you know, and Magneto's like, what are you doing? It's like, oh, I've got my hand behind your head. Why? So you don't get whiplash. What? Whiplash. Like he was speaking too fast. Yes. Yes. And that's something in the comics that has been done beautifully with that character of he's always a little ticked off and just impatient and unhappy because he's stuck in a world of slow pokes. Yes. He's got to wait for people. It was such a fun character. And like I said, that's that's why I'd like to see him stay in this part of the world, is they've established him so well. If they don't bring that actor and that character back, it's a missed opportunity. 
because he was a lot of fun. He was really well done. He is a... Well, he was really one of the earlier additions to the X-Men team. I honestly, based on what they gave him here, I can honestly see him getting his own movie and having some great adventures. He was fun. I could see that. Um, the original X-Men in the comics, Cyclops, Beast, uh, Jean Grey, Angel, and Iceman. Okay, a lot of those showed up here. Uh, the ones to get added after that, and I forget the exact order of these, included uh, Havoc, uh, Cyclops' brother, who we saw here. Uh, Polaris, which I think we saw in X-Men 3. Uh, Magnetic Powers, another daughter of, of Magneto. Uh, again, depending who you ask and when in the comics. Um, but then also uh, Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. Um, and the Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch were two of the members of the first kind of new roster for the Avengers. Uh, and I forget, exactly that was like in the first half dozen dozen issues of that title, I believe. Again, doing this from memory, I forget exactly when certain characters played up there. But at one point, the Avengers were Captain America, Hawkeye, Quicksilver, and Scarlet Witch. So that's where those characters are going to be kind of in both. Um, but this was definitely a lot of fun, uh, worth seeing. They did a good job with the 3D effect. They did a really good job with the story. They did, yeah. There have been, I mean, the first X-Men film I liked, but it was like, I like these characters, I want to spend more time with these characters. The plot itself, eh, it was all right. I definitely think they're improving the stories each time, and they've they've got a good handle on the characters, and I think that's what's making the movies get better each time. Well, I think the fact they don't need to explain what a mutant is, what the X-Men are, and stuff like that, gives them more time. They're choosing some very interesting time frames to put the characters in, some very interesting situations to put the characters in. Well, and they're bringing into the stories concepts from our world that we're all familiar with, the fear of people that we aren't just like, a sense of bullying. Well, and I also like how, over the course of all the films, Magneto and Mystique have had a very clear arc from, nope, they're just the bad guys, to, no, they're fighting for what they think is right, um... And, yeah. and have heroic aspects to them. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to see how the the movie X-Men universe has really evolved over time. Well, and I loved Charles Xavier at the end of the movie when Wolverine comes into his office and Xavier smiles and said, I had a promise to keep. Well, and, and welcome back, because at this point, yes. Wolverine's kind of woken back up in the, the new present day, and it's not what he remembers. And it's one of those where they could do another movie just on that conversation they have after that, and I'd be game for that. That would be a wonderful movie, definitely. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be a horrible movie. It'd be very boring, very dry, and I think a lot of people would snore through it. But... It, would be, <laughs> it would be mostly flashbacks. But it would be a fun story. It would be an amazing story done mostly in flashbacks with an occasional flip to them talking about it. Well, and just as a character piece. Yeah. The two of them having dinner, drinks, you know, as is, oh, that's what happened. How did this? How about this? You know, two old friends catching up, if you will. Might be a comic book miniseries. It could be. There's a lot they could do with that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's actually something that, given how they've broken the time stream in the Marvel Universe, how they've had different things, very few times at Marvel and DC have they ever really had a character that is in active use from an alternate timeline like that, where they're just a step out of sync. 
DC did that at one point with Triumph in the Justice League, but it was in one of the lower brand books, and he wasn't a major character. Um, but they've had a few times they could have done that exact thing with Wolverine, actually. So, a lot of fun, uh, well worth watching. Since you haven't watched X-Men, there's the possibility... First Class. Or, uh, X-Men First Class. You've seen, you've seen all three of the other films. I've seen all three of the other films, okay. but not First Class. We may at some point, uh, depending how things go, possibly some point soon, uh, watch X-Men First Class and talk about that. Because I think it being set in the 60s, in the Bay of Pigs, with the, the younger group of characters and whatnot... It puts a very different spin on the X-Men, but very true to what the X-Men were. Um, and as a lead-in to the younger versions of these characters that you saw today, might make some of that make more sense. Yeah, I did enjoy that, because I realized early on, wait, I think I missed a page. And that surprised me, because I do try to keep up with the movies, at least. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I guess to end the podcast, what I would say is, this was an excellent movie. It... I think Marvel is definitely doing something right with these movies, and I hope they keep making them and keep making them at the caliber they're doing them. Well, technically, this was not Marvel. This, this was, was Sony? I'm I'm pretty sure there was a Sony. Well, I could be wrong. But it's either I, Sony or Fox. I, my, I thought I there was a Sony logo at the end of this one. 20th Century Fox. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, that's what it says here. For a moment, I was going to say, it's, yeah, I don't have my well, glasses on, but then I realized I do. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're looking at the X-Men First Class DVD. It's the same company oh, okay. who's doing both. Um, interesting. Basically, uh, Fox has, I think they have Fantastic Four, and I think Sony has X-Men and Spider-Man, but I, I, I don't know. Fox has X-Men, Sony has Spider-Man, I don't know who has what. Yeah. I can't keep, a tra- uh, keep, yeah. keep track of it. But yeah, it was a very well-made movie, very well-written, and I I like the way they've developed the characters. I like the way they've developed the characters, I like the way they've developed the universe. I like how many of the previous actors came back for this, if only to do a cameo in the hallway at one yes. point. Yes, yes. It gives the series of movies and the universe a sense of continuity, a sense of consistency, a sense of reality. Yeah. And I like that they, 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 they went to that effort. Yeah. I think they're doing a really good job here. Yeah, it's certainly well worth watching. I'm glad I saw it in the theaters. It's one that I don't regret not having seen sooner, though. You know, it's... No. Very, uh, uh, Captain America. That was excellent movie. I would have been really bummed if I hadn't seen that in the theater. This I enjoyed seeing, but frankly, if we'd waited for the Blu-ray, I'd have survived. Yeah. I am curious what the bonus features on the Blu-ray will be. Yes. And well, like I said, I'm definitely going to pick up the Blu-ray, uh, as I will with Cap and some of the others. And it comes mm-hmm. down to, some of these are, uh, some of these I can find the time to see in the theater, some I can't. Guardians of the Galaxy is certainly tempting. Um, Kingsman, uh, The Secret Service is very tempting. That was a wonderfully done trailer. And, you know, sometimes when we see the trailers, I sit there watching it, and because I am familiar with the story, I'll sit there wondering, do they actually know what movie they just edited a trailer for? And other times I'll go, oh, yeah, they know exactly what movie they edited a trailer for. Based on the Kingsman trailer... I'm pretty sure I know what movie I'll be going to see, but I am a little curious how it jives with the story you're familiar with. Having read the uh, the Secret Service miniseries, um, I think there are going to be some clear changes to it for the film, but none that really surprised me, so we'll see. Anything else, or does that pretty much do it for this? I think that wraps it up for me. Cool. 
The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.